Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. All right, I need you to return in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. And uh, we're going to run through the story that Jeff read for you. It's a wonderful account. If this is your first Sunday here, we're studying through uh, the book of Acts, and we have left off here in chapter 16, verse 11. We are on Paul's second missionary journey, incredible section here. As you're turning there and getting settled, I want to throw some names out at you. I'm going to throw three names out at you, and I want to see if you can think about what they all have in common. There's lots of things they have in common, so this is one of those random questions. But, but, uh, but here are three names for you. The first name, name that uh, you might be familiar with, Martin Luther. Martin Luther in the 1500s, of course, Martin Luther was, uh, God raised him up to help us recover an understanding of the gospel, that we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God that, that the scriptures are our authority and that, that we live for God's glory and, and that Christ is the center of everything. And Luther just had a really profound impact on the church and we stand in, in, in his wake in terms of the things that he taught and the things that, that we believe and things that are, that are essential to us. Another name I want to throw out your way, Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, a little bit later, a few hundred years later, he, uh, great hymn writer. And can it be, great hymns, amazing love, these incredible songs that, 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 that Charles Wesley wrote and really provided kind of the, 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 uh, the background music to the teaching of the gospel. And in fact, Charles Wesley, such a powerful influence. There was a period of time when preaching was at an all-time low. People were not preaching the scriptures. And, and for many, the hymns of Charles Wesley is where they, they learned truth. They, they got truths to anchor their lives on. They, they, they got grounded in, in a deep understanding of who God was. And God really used this man and still uses his songs today. Just, they're, they're just hundreds of, of great songs and uh, some of them I would even encourage would be great devotions. You know, if you just get the, the songs of Wesley, just read through them. They're just so profoundly deep. Another name, we're going to fast forward 100 years later, Charles Spurgeon. Another great name, prolific preacher. There's over 10,000 of his sermons in print. I've got volumes of, of Spurgeon's works in my study. Uh, he would preach to literally thousands and thousands of people at a time in an era where there were no microphones. It's amazing. He could stand in front of 10,000 people and preach with no microphone. And, and he, he has a book he called Lectures to My Students. There, he taught people how to preach, and he would teach because there were no microphones, hand signals. And in there were like in the older versions, you know, God, when you're saying God, and when you're saying the devil, and there's all these different hand signals that he would use, and he would teach these preachers, and so there was like, you know, preacher size. It was like exercising when you would preach, you know. It was like, woo. It was amazing. But this guy preached thousands and thousands of sermons to hundreds of thousands of people, the, one of the most prolific preachers of, of the age. Now, what do they have in common? Well, I'll tell you what I want to point out to you, they all come from Europe. They all come from Europe. And I wanted to point that out to you because for many of us in this room, what God did in and through people on the continent of Europe has a direct impact in our life today, a direct impact. We stand on the shoulders of many great men and women 
who gave up their lives for the gospel, who, who served, who did incredible things. And it all flowered out of this work of, of the gospel work in Europe. Now what's interesting about the Europe gospel work is that we are studying today the very first evangelistic move into Europe. The first time the gospel made its way there. It's interesting, Paul, when he went to Turkey, he wanted to keep going into Russia, and God kept stopping him. He kept saying, you can't go there, you can't go there. And he tried, and God said, no, I've got another plan for you, you're going to go to Europe. And he goes over to Europe, and we can look back now, a couple thousand years later, and we can see what God's intention was. That God was going to do this incredible work, start a work there in Europe that was literally going to flower to impact us today and impact the work that's even going on here directly today that, that I believe God had in view even this moment we're in right now. When Paul's trying to go to Turkey, he has no idea that 2,000 years later, because God had directed him into Europe, that all that stuff would happen and that would land to right here in the United States and then it would land to the work of the mission that goes on even from here. All of that, we're all tied in to this incredible moment. And we're going to see this work. We're going to see this work. We are going back and studying our family history here, our family tree. We're going back. To, to our theological roots, and we're seeing how Paul goes into Europe, and what started there was amazing. And so here's what Paul does. He goes into Europe, and he basically establishes a church. We're going to see that today. And then we're going to see how out of that church evangelism occurred in a very random way, the most random evangelism you could ever have. And then from that, this church emerges as a as a, as a pillar in the community, so to speak. And we'll see all of this in this account today. And I want you to see this because there's something I want you to catch. I want you to see as God is moving, that, that he is communicating two really big truths. He's communicating something, communicating something about his love and he's communicating something about his power. Because as this work into Europe goes, God is going to just absolutely uh, expand the understanding of the gospel in a way that, 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 that I think the church would have not even recognized that God would have done. We're going to see that today. And then we're going to see God declare his power over the demons and over the governments of the world. We're going to see all of that today. And I want us to see this because that's our roots. The roots of, the, of Europe that made its way over here that has impacted us. That's what we're standing on is this very foundation. And as we think about life and ministry and moving forward and doing things for the kingdom of God, we've got to remember this is our roots, man. This is, this is who we are. This is what we stand on. This is really encouraging. So this, this is kind of a, you know, a celebration day. This is about the, the love of God, the power of God, the glory of God. And so this is if we were you know, uh, a little less Midwestern, we'd be hooping and hollering kind of sermon. Okay, but you don't have to. So let's look here at the first thing here, the, the, the church established. And in the first couple of verses, we're going to get the background. We're going to see the background to the story here. So let's look at verses 11 and 12. He says, so setting sail from Troas. So this is Luke writing. You got Luke, you've got Timothy, you got Paul. So this is the team, right? So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, 
and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. So now, here's what's happened. Let me kind of paint the picture. Paul has now made his way, set foot into Europe. He's on the southern tip of Europe. He's, he's crossed over from Turkey to Europe. And now, he's in this town called Philippi. Philippi is a very strategic town. It's actually a, run by the, by the military. It's a military outpost, military town. And, uh, and, and the military held things in a very orderly way. Now, you see, something you need to understand about the Roman government, and it will be, it'll come to play later in the story, so you have to understand this. The Roman government had this, this saying called the Pax Romana. You probably heard of that, right? The Pax Romana. Pax Romana is just Latin for the peace of Rome. And they would put the Pax Romana on everything. They would say, listen, we want peace. We believe that we want orderly society and we believe everything should be done with, with peace. And the way you get peace is by following our laws. They design laws to promote peace. If you break our laws, they said, then you are actually promoting chaos. And so we'll kill you or beat you or do horrible things to you. But at the end of the day, if you don't value our laws, and therefore our peace, it is crazy. You're, you're, you're going to pay for it. Now, in towns like Philippi that were run by the military, that, those laws were held strict. They were held strict. I mean, these guys, they took it seriously. So now they, they are here in this military town. It's a very strategic town. It's a port city, so a lot of trade and commerce would go on. It had a temple in it, and they worshiped the god Apollo. And, uh, and, they, and, they, and they loved this God, and, and he was a very prominent part of their worship system and all the spiritism that came out of the worship of this God. Okay, so now, now we move on. There's our background. Now we're going to see how the word of God makes its way into Europe. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we were outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, you read that, and you kind of probably would just either read past that or maybe think, I don't really get why he thinks people are going to be praying outside the gate. Let me explain to you. There's a little background that will help this, this situation make sense. The Jews, well, first of all, you knew that Paul's method was always to go to a synagogue first. He'd go into town, go into a synagogue, because he'd want to start with the Bible. And so he would find Jews in a synagogue and he would talk to them how Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He's the fulfillment of the law. And that would be his starting point for his ministry to, to non-Jews. Now, Paul goes into Philippi. What is assumed in this text by the background here is that there is no synagogue. And the way we know this is that the Jews said, if you do not have ten men, ten Jewish men in the town, you cannot have a synagogue. So if you don't have 10 dedicated men, no synagogue. Well, what would happen if you had 10 dedicated women? Where would they worship? Where would they pray? The law, the Jewish law said, they were to go outside the gate of the city and conduct their prayer outside of the city. And that's where they were allowed to pray. So, Paul is in Philippi. What we kind of pick up from the way this unfolds, Luke's just kind of, giving us the high points, is he goes in the city. There is no synagogue. So he says, well, there's got to be some Jewish women. Let's go outside the gate. Let's go find some. So that's what he's saying. We, we, we went outside the gate where we supposed there was a place of prayer. They're thinking there has to be some women out there praying. So let's go find them. If we can't find 10 men, 
Let's go find some women. So they're walking around outside the gate looking for the women who are praying. So that's what's going on here. Now, that's a little bit of insight into Paul's methodology. I want you to stop and think about it. The Jewish custom of the day was, we're not going to even worship with women. We're not going to let them worship. If they're going to worship by themselves, they can't even be in our city. they got to go outside the gate. Now, going outside the gate, you might think is just kind of like, oh, okay, well, if we live in DeKalb, we just got to go to Malta, right? That's not what he's saying. Going outside the gate puts them at risk. The gate was secure. You step outside the gate, there's no one there to protect you. It's a gate for a reason, because what's on the other side of it is bad. So these poor women have to go outside this area where there's commerce and trade and men going by and all kinds of stuff happening, and they got to go out and pray. The Jews wouldn't allow them to pray in their presence, but what does the gospel do? The gospel doesn't make that kind of distinction, does it? The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel says, man, Jesus came and he died for all creation. For all men and women, boys, girls, this is what this whole chapter screams, this whole, this whole account. The gospel's for everyone. This is the width of God's love, man. This is not just find 10 men. If you don't find 10 men, then, hey, let's just move on. Let the women kind of just fall behind whatever the men are. No, he went after them. This is unheard of that a man would go seek these guys, these girls out to go find them and share Christ with them. But that's what the gospel does. Right? The gospel doesn't make these kinds of distinctions. And so, what is Paul doing? Paul is trying to bring the word of God to a group of women who are sitting outside the gate. Powerful. Now, when, the word, when somebody goes to bring the word of God somewhere, you know what happens? The spirit of God is there and faith is there. That's our next thing that we're going to see. The spirit of God and faith is there. Notice at verse 14, one of us, one who heard us, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. A couple things we learn about Lydia here. Of course, she lives in Thyatira, one of the cities there. She sells purple goods. That's a, little, that's a sign that she's probably really rich. The Roman government valued the color purple, and if you're selling purple goods, you are selling things to noblemen, you're probably earning a pretty penny. And she's probably not a Jew. She's probably a Gentile convert to Judaism because typically when they would reference somebody being a worshiper of God, that was the little code word that they weren't Jewish. They, they, they were coming as a, as a proselyte. So, so most theologians agree. In fact, hardly anyone thinks she's Jewish. She's a Gentile who, makes, who has her own business, and, uh, and, and she is seeking to follow God. But notice what's happening. Notice the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. That's what God does, man. When somebody's faithful, and this is the good news of the gospel. You know, when you go somewhere to bring Christ, you might think, are they going to listen to me? Are they going to hear me? I'm nervous. I don't know what I should say. But, you know, you're not alone at that moment, right? That's the good news. You're not alone. The Spirit of God opens people's hearts and eyes and minds to understand it. And, and there have been times when I've talked to people and I'm thinking, boy, these words coming out of my mouth probably sound really silly to you right now. And then all of a sudden someone responds and you're like, wow, yeah, it would be silly unless God opens your eyes. When I send out the, some people get the sermon notes that are involved in the service here. So on Saturdays I send out my notes from the sermon and it helps people who are involved in ministry here. 
And I usually just send one little note when I send out the sermon note. Please pray for open hearts and open minds. Just pray that God would open people's hearts and minds. That's all you got to pray for because when the word of God is delivered and the spirit of God is present opening people's hearts and minds, man, it's, you know, vinegar and baking soda, right? It's bubbles everywhere. It's great. Okay, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, just go home and mix it <laughs> in your living room. No, I'm kidding. Don't. <laughs> and so what's happening? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. Paul is describing this glorious person of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke totally fast forwards. Look at verse 15, right? He just gets right to the point. And after she was baptized, right? She, she trusted after she was baptized and her household as well. She heard just saying, if you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So she hears the word. She places her faith. They baptize her. Luke basically gives this impression. They go back to her house. Paul starts sharing with the house, and everyone's getting saved, and everyone's getting baptized. Right? I mean, it's a giant pool party. It's great. The Spirit of God is at work. You know what's great about this? The gospel's for everyone. You're not saying, listen, we're just going to reach the head of the household, and everyone else just kind of follows in line with what he... Man, it's for your kids, it's for your wife, it's for everyone. This is the greatest news ever. Paul can go to Lydia. Lydia can bring you back to her home. Paul can share in the home, and boom. Who, I, we don't know who's in the home, but we do know that they all place their faith. And then she basically says, you're welcome to stay in my home. In fact, she like pushed us, stay here, stay here, stay here. Well, they've got no place to stay, so it's a great place. But this now becomes the first church. This is the first European church. This is it. Right here. It's incredible. This is how this church has been established. Now, at this point, Paul's strategy is that he's going to keep going out to the out, get outside of the gate, okay? And he's going to keep sharing with these women, and hopefully, as more get saved, they all start gathering into a church, and you start meeting their family. This is his missionary strategy. But it's, unfortunately, it's not God's strategy. God has a completely other missionary strategy for Paul. And it's going to start with an annoying demon, okay? But this is where we now see this church evangelizing. And I want you to make an observation here. Everything that takes place in this story from right now was not a strategy of Paul. This was not his plan. He's going along, and all of a sudden, something happens, something else happens, and something else happens, and now he's being beaten and thrown in jail all thrusted upon him. All thrusted upon him. And you might think at that moment, wow, God, what are you doing? He's having great success outside the gate. Why are you getting the guy beaten and thrown in jail? And sometimes if you just looked at it from that point of view, from a very narrow point of view, you could just say, God, what are you doing? It makes no sense. But then when you pull back and you see what God's doing, you say, this makes perfect sense. And it gives me hope because no matter how many strategies we have in life, no matter how many strategies we have in life, God has a, a strategy. He's working things, and sometimes they don't always make sense. And This is one of those ones that had to have been really unique for Paul. But in order for the gospel to be established in Rome, two things need to happen. God has to display that he is more powerful than the spirits of the age. And he's got to display that he's more powerful than the king. 
God is going to establish his authority in a military town. How do you share the gospel in a military town? You share the gospel by showing the authority, the power, the sovereign rule of God. He is more powerful than the spirits, and he's more powerful than your army. He's more powerful than your weapons. He's got power. And so God is going to put Paul in a very unique situation but to display this. So let's look here as we see the church evangelizing now. And let's look at how he is more, God shows that he's more powerful than the spirits. Verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, so they're making their way outside the gate again, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Okay, so now, picture this. They're walking along, and up comes this slave girl. And this slave girl, as we're going to discover, is possessed by a demon. And the thing that this demon is able to do is to give her some kind of insight so that she can tell some kind of future, some kind of future telling that she has, fortune telling. Which I'll give you a little, here's a little side note here. Uh, if you were to read verse 16 and you were to do a very literal reading of it, it would say this. It would say that, that we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of a python, is the actual rendering, a spirit of a python. And you might think, what does that mean? What is the spirit of a python? Well, some, some of the older translations used to actually use the word python. The python was a very sacred animal in Philippi. It actually ties into the worship of the god Apollo. There was some, in Greek mythologies, recorded that, that, that uh, Apollo had slain a python snake, slain this snake, and then the spirit of that snake entered into Apollo, and it gave him the ability to tell the future. And so now what they used to say is that if you were a, a, a fortune teller, if you were a psychic, you actually had the spirit of a python in you. There was actually a whole religion developed out of this, and, uh, and it was very much part of the culture, and this woman had a demon in her. It's interesting, a term they used to use, this is just a little extra freebie for you here this morning, but they would use the word ventriloquist to refer to a, a fortune teller. That was actually where the word first came out, ventriloquist, because they would be saying that actually the, the demon was speaking, the spirit was speaking through you, you weren't the one speaking, it was inside of you. And that's where the whole idea of ventriloquism came from, was this, this demon, this Pythonism and all of this stuff. Now, if you go home and have a little dummy and you do ventriloquist, you're not demon-possessed. Don't worry. The elders will not be coming over and exercising your home, okay? But that's what the word really, where it comes from. So now, did this woman have any kind of supernatural abilities? Probably something. I'm sure the demon gave her some kind of insight into something. Now, demons don't know everything, but they could probably get some kind of insight into what your brother-in-law is doing in another town and and in a day where you don't have internet and email and all that kind of stuff, there might be some unique insight that she might have. But people would come from all over, and she made a lot of money for her owner telling fortunes. So now, here's this woman. Made a lot of money for her owner. She has the spirit in her. Look at verse 17. It says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So you got to picture the, the image. I'm sure you've, you, if you've ever studied this before, you would know what this, uh, you probably thought about this moment. But, but here you have a demon-possessed woman following Paul around, telling the truth. Because whenever demons are in the presence of truth, they don't lie. They don't lie. 
They're subject to God. And, and, and Jesus has conquered them. I love it. I've quoted this before, but one religious leader was asked on a television show, if you woke up in the middle of the night and Satan was standing at the foot of your bed, what would you do? And he said, I would wake up, I'd look at him and go, oh, it's only you, and I would roll over because Christ has conquered him. <laughs> right? His head has been crushed. Go back to bed. Don't worry about it. Go back to sleep. So this woman, she can't lie. So what is she saying? These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Pretty amazing, isn't it? She's, she is saying the truth. She's saying the truth. And she's following them around, yelling this. So, so Paul's trying to get outside the gate. He's got a demon-possessed woman behind him declaring the truth, yelling it. I am sure he's getting annoyed. In fact, we know he's getting annoyed. Okay, we know that it's starting to, to get to him. Because look at verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Now, at, somewhere in these many days, Paul has not casted this demon out. He's actually not, we don't see any, like, mercy towards her. Right? He's got, well, like, this mission. I've got to get outside the gate. I've got to get outside the gate. going to go, right, this is my plan. This is the strategy. We're working it. And behind her is this woman going, these men are the most high God, these men are the most high God, they have the way of salvation, on and on and on and on. And Paul, for this going on for days, and so Paul, having become greatly annoyed, and remember in the Greek, whenever there's uh, like a descriptor, greatly annoyed, it's like way outside the box. This is launch the pillow across the room frustration, okay? That's the, really the picture here. He's become at the absolute end of himself. Like, oh, be quiet, woman, right? This is what he's feeling inside. But instead of going, be quiet, woman, he goes, get out! <laughs> and the demon leaves. <laughs> I want to see that. Like, I'm a... And I want to talk to Paul about this. I really do. Don't you? I, I hope, you know, if you have talked about this before, I hope there's like a giant video collection in heaven. I don't know what <laughs> format it will be. But... Uh, but that you can watch these stories, right? I, I really am praying because I want to actually see it in real time, right? We are like the, the video generation, so we can't think of anything unless we see it, right? I mean, if it's not on video, it didn't happen. So, so I'd love to see it because I want to see Paul, maybe a little in the flesh, I don't know, a little upset. He's annoyed. It's not mercy. He's not going, oh, man, this woman's in bondage. We need to help her out. Let's, let's set her free from this demon. It's more like, be quiet, woman. Would you leave us alone? Finally, be gone, demon. Boom, and the demon leaves. Right? And it came out right there. Weird moment. Paul has no idea that this is the first major evangelistic offensive into Europe. He's had a couple minor battles that he's won with Lydia and her family. Little things are going on here and there. Got a nice little momentum going outside the gate. But God's plan was for him to reach Philippi in a, in a pretty powerful way. And so the first way he's going to do it is he's going to take Paul to the end of himself. But what did God show? Notice he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. There was the message right there. In the name of Jesus Christ. He has conquered the demons. He has conquered the devil. He has authority over the spiritual world. The spiritual world is not ruling this planet. Jesus is. And so on the basis of his authority, get out. You have no right to stand here. You have no right in her. Get out. And she goes. And what happens? At this moment, even though 
we don't really quite understand why it played out this way, but it's just real life. Even though we don't understand it, God showed his authority over the demons. Now, God's going to show his authority over man, over the kings of the earth. Notice verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, right? And this girl has no ability to do this anymore. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, now, listen to what he said, because remember what I said before about the Pax Romana, following the rules, following the orders. Look at what they said. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. See? Going after the Roman emotion here. These guys are creating a disturbance in the city. They're messing with the Pax Romana. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They're telling us to break your laws. Do you know what these guys have done? Now, this is all lies. The only thing that's happened is that a demon's left a woman. And Paul's trying to minister outside the gate. He's not even trying to minister in the gate. And yet, they make up this lie. They lie. So notice what happens. The crowd joined in the attacking of them. So now, because they're in the marketplace, they're in the center square, these guys are yelling this, suddenly now there's a riot going on, right? There's a riot going on. Humans love to riot. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Okay, so got craziness going on, and so the Roman government, went, they come in with power and authority. So the first thing they do is they take Paul and Silas, they, they strip them down, take their clothes off, and then they bend them over a post, and they take a big stick, and they beat them in the center of the back. Just, oh, right? I mean, right on that nerve, and you can imagine the pain, right? So now these guys are being beaten. Now, at this moment, if you just kind of could enter into that exact moment when you're laid over the, you know, you're Paul and you're laid over and you got a guy beating you because all you did was cast a demon out, it could seem like the entire mission's falling apart, right? We got success going on outside the gate and all of a sudden this woman was just annoying me to death and finally, I finally got so frustrated I cast the demon out of her in the name of Jesus and now I'm being beaten. We're going in reverse here. This, is, this doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It seems like we're going backwards. But that's not God's plan right now. And then they're going to throw him in jail. I want you to notice something here. If you'll notice verse 23, it says, And when they inflicted many blows upon them, I can't imagine that. I don't even want to have it happen once. I can't imagine how many times. They threw them into prison. And then notice what it says, Ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Hey, that just seems like nice and pretty. If you were a jailer in that day, if you were given an order, protect these ones. If they escaped, you will be beaten with rods and killed. But that, that was it. That's the only way as a jailer to ensure that you would, you would do your job, that you wouldn't fall asleep on post. You can, you get, if you fall asleep on post, you die. It's just the reality of it. And so, verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. So, they are way down in a dungeon. Then they fast them in stocks. So basically what they do is they take their arms and their legs. They're sitting on the floor. 
and they're kind of spread eagle and, and you know, stuck in this wooden thing that's clamped down on them. Arms and legs clamped down. So picture you've just been beaten on, you know, right there in the center of your back 10, 15, I don't know how many times. And then you're down in a dungeon and you're in stocks. There's no, no civil rights going on here, right? There's no potty runs. You're going to sit in your own waist. You're going to sit in your own blood. You're going to sit having just had your, your whole, that whole area, all the nerves just absolutely put in the most excruciating pain. And then you're going to be stretched out and the cramping that must go on. And the, I can't imagine the pain that would go on and how their muscles must be like really cramping up. And they're down in this dungeon. And it's dark and it's you know, probably humid and there's rats everywhere. It was just a horrible place to be, and they've got a guard outside their door. Okay. But where does this lead to? This leads to praise, which is amazing, right? I mean, you think about this. Notice verse 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They got more prisoners around in the upper part of the, of the jail. They're down at the bottom, so they're in the basement, and their voices are carrying. These guys are praising God. Like, you know, you would, I, I just can't imagine that. I mean, there is so much less that throws me off kilter, <laughs> right? Way less that throws me off kilter. Um, I, I can't imagine thinking you're on this mission to go out to the city, outside the gate to go preach Christ, and all, in, in a moment's notice... It's all changed. Everything's changed. The whole world's dramatically changed in an instant over this one girl. They didn't, you know, they just cast the demon out, that's all. But what do they do? About midnight, they're praying. They're singing praises to God. So it's dark. It is pitch dark. Prisoners are listening. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. You know what's amazing about this moment is that God allowed this whole situation to ramp up to such intensity, such intensity that would drive them to be driven to the most secure part of the prison. Right? This whole thing's just ramping up at, at, a, at a rate it shouldn't be ramping up. It's unfair. And then they're driven into the most secure part of the prison so that God could say, it doesn't really matter. I have authority over this. I have authority over the prisons. I have authority over everything. And so their servants are in there praising God, which just is amazing to me. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Not just Paul and Silas. The picture here is everyone. God opened the whole prison door. Now, this leads to the next big convert that's going to take place. The next big convert now, mind you, you're this guard, and all of a sudden the doors are flinging open. <laughs> you're thinking, I am dead. I'm going to get, you know, hit in the back with rods. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be tortured, and then I'm going to be killed. You know what? It'd be much easier to take my own life, and that's what he thinks. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, because obviously he falls asleep. I think he's thinking Paul's fine. He's in the inner prison. Uh, he's probably sleeping right outside the door. Boom, door opens up. He's about ready to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Paul understands this moment. He is so in tune with the moment. As soon as the doors, the picture is, as soon as the doors open up, he yells to the guard, don't kill yourself! Because he knows 
that the only thing this guard would do is take his own sword, take his own life. Don't do it. We're here. We're good. Okay, powerful moment. So the jailer calls for lights, right? They light up the, you know, it wasn't flicking a switch, right? Somebody's got to get lanterns and get these things lit. They rush in and trembling, they fall down before Paul. What must I do to be saved? Now, a lot of people think, is he just talking about like saved from the Roman government? No, it's pretty clear. He has just witnessed the power of God. He has just seen something fling open these gates. Something caused this demon-possessed girl to be healed. He has just stood in a power that he has never, ever experienced in his life. And he's a Roman soldier. He knows power. He's a Roman soldier, and yet he's got something that is making this man, who was pretty fearless, fall down with fear. What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, and they said, very simple, you just trust in Christ, man. Believe that Jesus is the Lord. Not Caesar, no one else. Jesus, humble yourself. He is the king of kings, and you will be saved. And guess what? Even your home. This isn't just for you. This is the message of, 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 of the European invasion. Everyone, man, you're all welcome. You all got a seat at God's table. Paul just is like so like give it away to everybody, man. It isn't just like I'm sharing Christ with you. I'm sharing Christ with you and your family. Come on, take me home. So what happens? Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. He's unpacking what this means. And to all who were in his house, right? Paul just right away at the very beginning, this isn't for just you, you and your home. The guy says, all right, come home with me. So now the guard takes him home. So here he is, takes him home. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, because you could imagine how bad shape they must have been in, and just covered in everything, and rats probably gnawing at them, and, you know, it must be just a horrible, painful experience. And he was baptized, his whole family was baptized, they brought him up into his house, they set food before him, and they all rejoiced, everyone believed in God, this was God's plan of evangelism. Wow, that's tough! That is, wow. You know, my flesh likes more of the outside they ate hanging out with some, you know, friendly women who want to feed you, you know? <laughs> Let alone, like, oh, wow. How do you share Christ to Roman soldiers? Well, first, you got to get beaten by them. <laughs> and second, they got to threaten to kill you. And then God will rescue you, and then you can share Jesus. All right. We sign up sheets in the back for that mission, okay? Sign up sheets in the back. We're all welcome to come. That's what it takes, though, to share Christ in this context. God establishes his authority, and they all believed. There is evangelism. Now, let's look at the church emerging, and then we'll kind of wrap it up here. The church emerging. What I want to do is read the rest of the story all at once, and then I want to show you what happens, just like explain it all to you here. Look at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let themselves, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words of the magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens, as well they should be. So they came and apologized to them. 
And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, to a lot of people, this is a weird ending. Paul seems to be like pushing it a little bit. And there's a lot of speculation as to why he's pushing it. And a lot of people have written a lot of different things about it. I'm going to offer you what I think is the reason why. Okay? You might disagree with this. There's speculation. We, we know what happens. So the, the jailer brings them back to prison. They're back in there because they're still arrested. And so he brings them back. And, uh, and then the magistrate realizes, you know, we've like violated a lot of laws here. So everything we just did was illegal. Let's just kind of get them out quietly. Just go over there, tell them they can go. And, uh, and so they come, and of course Paul says, no! You know what? You're going to drag us in the middle of the courtyard. You're going to beat us. You're going to condemn us as condemned people. Then you've got to publicly take this off the table. You're going to arrest us publicly. You've got to forgive us publicly. Why? And then he throws the little caveat that he didn't toss in before. And by the way, I'm a Roman soldier, which means, guess what, magistrate? You could be killed for what you just did because it's against the law to beat a Roman citizen with a rod. You just violated the law. The Pax Romana is the one. You violated the Pax Romana, not me. Now, why would Paul push this? Is he just getting his dig in? No. I'm going to tell you why I think he's doing this. Because I think as the story, as he's... He is publicly forgiven, publicly let out by the magistrate for everyone to see. And the first place he goes is to Lydia's house. Why? I believe he's protecting the church. I believe he, he wants to make sure that he is cleared publicly so that the work that began in that house would emerge as, a, as something that is legal. I believe that that is, I really believe that. The text doesn't tell us that's the reason. But knowing Paul, knowing his love for the church, knowing his, his, his understanding in Romans 14 that we as Christians are the best citizens in the world because we don't rebel against governments in that way. We don't operate. We don't, we're not here to undo the Pax Romana. In fact, we're going to tell you how real peace can come, something even better, a Pax Romana, Pax Christus, Jesus' peace. We've got something that will bring, that will blow your peace out of the water. All right, we're not undoing it. We're going to improve upon it. And I believe he's establishing this church so that it can emerge in society, not as something that was formed by a rebel, because if he's silently let out of the city quietly, then everything that happened with Lydia and everything that happened with those women would be held suspect because they were founded by a criminal. And I think Paul is clearing his name to clear the name of the church. That's what I believe. I think it fits the theology of Paul because what's he want to do? He wants to see a church emerge strong, because he, he wants that church to engage the culture. He doesn't want them to start in hiding, right? Let's just meet in attics and let's just like hide out. Stand strong, man. Jesus will save you. And if you die, that's great. You're going to go to heaven. But if you live, guess what? The glory and the power of Christ will be made manifest. So stand firm. But let's make sure that we don't take any undue pain. Let's make sure that you're established and that you can emerge the right way. Okay, so... Let's wrap this up. This is an amazing story because we are going to, there's two things that we really see here. We talked about God really showing his love because the first thing that we get a chance, I think this whole story shows us, is that salvation is for everyone. This is, the, this is what drives Paul. 
right? He's not making distinctions. He doesn't make distinction between men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. He doesn't make distinctions on color of skin or where you were born. He doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. God, who created humanity, who created the nations, has a heart to save them all and every human. He's going to send people out so this message would be made known to everyone. There's a prayer that priests pray, Jewish priests pray, and it literally goes like this. Bless God that I'm not a woman, a Gentile, a slave, or a sinner. And you think, wow, that's a horrible prayer. Praise God that I'm not a woman, a Gentile, a slave, or a sinner. Paul is reversing. That prayer, by the way, is not in the Bible. Okay? <laughs> I don't want you to think it was. It never was. But people who misunderstood the Bible began to pray that, and it's still prayed today. And Paul goes in and says, you know what? Praise God that he loves women, Gentiles, slaves, and sinners. Praise God. That's the good news, man. This is good stuff. This is the wideness of the mercy of God. But the second thing that we see from this text is God is more powerful than the world. The demons and the governments are subject to him. Our founding ministry in Europe that most of us tie our, our, our spiritual heritage to was founded by God making this one, two declarations. The spirits are under my control and the kings are under my control. And so we can go with boldness. It is true that serving God will oftentimes mean that there are, are, are detours that you would have never planned. Detours that would never you would have ever thought. How a demon-possessed woman who annoys you becomes the key to an entire move of God. But along the way, there's pain and suffering. Sometimes the path is rough. Most of the time, the path is rough. But yet God uses in the, in the depths of those really deep, dark hurts and struggles, that is when the world is watching. And that is when Christ shines. That's when the light shines. Some of you, you feel like maybe you're sidelined because your whole world is falling apart. And I want to tell you, you might be in the spotlight right now. You might be the one that God is using in the spotlight. At that moment, as people watch you, at that moment, as you have nothing but, but praise to cling to a God as you're sitting in pain and suffering, that is the spotlight that the very power of God is manifested. That's our heritage. And so let's not run from it, but let's embrace it. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Paul. You raised him up, even in his own weaknesses, even in his own struggles. I don't understand why it wasn't mercy that drove him to cast the demon out. I don't get that, other than I know that I struggle. I don't walk through life doing everything right. But yet, even at that moment's notice when he acted, you used it. You carried out your work through pain, through trials. Lord, let us not forget the wideness of the mercy of God. If any of us in this room harbor a prejudice, harbor a, a people or a people group or something in our heart where we, we look down upon them, where we, we, we see them as less than human and we would want to see them destroyed, God, would you remove that and fill us with the wideness of your mercy? And may you raise up out of the, the ash heaps of this world people from everywhere, to, to be servants of you, God. And in the midst of this, 
as we go through life and the detours come that we don't plan and the trials come and the pain comes and, the, and all of a sudden it's changed in a moment's notice, Lord. May we not feel like you're taking us out of the game. May we remember, Lord, this is the moment. This is the game. Keep us there, God, with our faith in you, with joy in our hearts and helping us to endure because this is the plan. This is the way you demonstrate your power. And Lord, I pray that as we keep that focus that we would have stories to tell of your power being made known in our weaknesses and in the midst of this world. May Christ be glorified. Thank you, God, for this great account. May it stir with us forever. In Christ's name. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.